Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Dr. Ellen Donovan of the Department of English has examined the way American boys were depicted in 19th century novels in an article in Children's Literature Association Quarterly. In particular, Donovan dissects the author James Otis Taylor, who wrote more than 180 novels for children between 1880 and his death in 1912. The different types of male protagonists and the degrees of agency they displayed paint an interesting picture that may or may not have had anything to do with reality or even how Taylor himself saw boyhood. We'll look between the pages after this. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Ellen, welcome. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Why did James Otis Kaler pique your interest? I was interested, I've been interested in a long time um, in the way the circus is portrayed in children's literature. And Kaler's novel, Toby Tyler, is the most famous example of that. Um, Disney made a movie based on that novel. And that was actually how, as a child, I first um, learned that story. Um, I was hoping when I began this research that it would be a really um, joyful project because we think of the circus as this uh, very child appropriate place. But in fact, uh, most of the representations of the circus in the 19th century were not very positive. And so it was a, a real learning experience. And Kaler's novel is a good encapsulation of all the issues associated with the circus that people found problematic in the 19th century. Yeah. You mentioned three different types of boys in the Kaler books, the sentimental boy, the upwardly mobile boy, and the knowing boy. Let's take the, the sentimental boy first in the novels about uh, Toby Tyler, uh, a boy who runs away from an unpleasant life on the farm and, and joins a circus. The circus people become sort of a, a, a family for, for Toby, though. So uh, I haven't read the book, so I can't honestly say whether what its depiction of the circus itself is like, but he seems to find a, a new family uh, in the circus, among the circus people. Yes, that's right. We know that Toby doesn't really have a family in his and Uncle Daniel's farm. And it's not really clear why he's working on Uncle Daniel's farm. And we know he's pro Uncle Daniel is probably not his real uncle. So he seems to be orphaned in some way. And so when he goes to the circus and he and his family kind of coheres around him, the circus performers, that 
sense of family is very important for the sentimentality that was considered the best, the most beneficial environment for a child in the 19th century. And so he needs that family in order to grow health in a healthy way, but also so that his own skill or his own innate ability as a child to, to empathize, empathically connect with other beings can be um, utilized and provide agency for him. In fact, he takes to this orphan boy named Abner, who uh, Toby defends against some bullying peers. Uh, was this a, a picture that, uh, well, it's obviously consistent with the, the sentimental boy, but was it intended to depict Toby's yearning for uh, a family-like relationships? Well, by the time that Toby defends Abner, we're in the second book about Toby Tyler, and he is no longer with the circus. Just as you ran away to the circus, at the end of the novel that's about him in the circus, Toby Tyler, he runs away from the circus. He realizes that that is not the best place for him. And that's not really well developed in the novel, so I, I can't really explain why he thinks that way. He just does. But when he defends Abner, he defends him empathetic. Well, first, he has this empathetic connection. He recognizes that Abner is orphaned, that he's isolated at the poor farm, that he doesn't have any friends. And at that point, Toby is living with his Uncle Daniel, who somehow also now has a wife and can provide the um, wonderful family support uh, that Toby needs to grow up in a healthy way. And Toby's, all of Toby's friends also are in stable nuclear families that they live in a small village. It's just a very pastoral kind of environment. But Abner is the person who's not a part yet because he's living at the poor farm. And so by empathetically connecting, understanding what Abner's experience is like because of his Toby's own experience in the circus, he can defend Abner and draw him into the community of boys that are making this play circus and eventually into the family that he is a part of with Aunt Olive and Uncle Daniel. In fact, you quote a portion of a speech Toby makes in, uh, with, and Kaylor is writing this in kind of a dialect, right. uh, whereby Toby says, in essence, um, I'll defend him because he doesn't have it as well off as some of the rest of us. And it's up to us, this is Toby speaking, to take care of people who don't have it as good as we do, right? Right. And actually that, that theme, that message is repeated over and over again in various ways, yeah. over and over. And all of the adults, I guess I could say that accurately, really are looking out for other people who are not as, as fortunate as they are themselves. Not only is Toby doing it, but Uncle Daniel is worried about the kind of hobos who are seem to be migrating through, and he wants to make sure that they don't steal his chickens, but he also wants to make sure that they have a good breakfast. Ben, the circus wagon driver from the first book, appears in the second book, and he has decided to adopt Abner. So everybody's kind of looking out for each other in that book. We'll take a break here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. 
the Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Ellen Donovan, a professor of English, and we're talking about her writing about uh, James Otis Kaler and his novels from uh, right before the turn of the 19th century into the 20th and his depictions of boyhood in those novels. The second type of boy he writes about, the upwardly mobile boy, depicts a kind of self-reliance. But how is he different from that kind of Horatio Alger model of being able to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and accomplish? anything in America if you just, by golly, work hard enough. He is so similar, <clears throat> excuse me, so similar to that Horatio Alger boy. And actually, Horatio Alger wrote books about the circus as well. Boys in Horatio Alger's books tend to be slightly different in that, at least in this book, the boy is actually an orphan, and but he has a daughter, a sister, excuse me, to take care of. And it, she's called an infant, but we don't really know how old she is. She's old enough that when he's walking down the road and he's overtaken by the circus train, he's carrying her in his arms and the narrator calls her an infant. So Jim, the character in this story, he has not only to raise himself up by his own bootstraps, but he also has to provide for his younger sister. And that is a motivation that recurs. Um, the narrator is careful to remind us over and over again. He is not only watching out for himself, but for his younger sister. So the upwardly mobile boy, he, he learns sort of at an early age, he can't expect anybody to help him or nurture him, uh, not even grown-ups who are supposed to help and nurture children. But they, he also just innately happens to be able to do many remarkable things. So even though he um, is taken up by the circus and he is assigned to be the helper of the elephant trainer, he learns his tasks so well that very shortly after he's taken up by the circus, the elephant trainer is injured and cannot perform. And so Jim steps in and does such a terrific job that the circus owner is like, you are now going to be our new elephant performer. And as the novel goes on, he becomes better and better at it, even though he knows that, again, this is not the place for him. This is just a step on his development 
so that he can find a place for himself and his sister. So he has many natural talents and uses them effectively throughout the novel. I can understand, I think, why a little boy would want to see himself in the image of someone who, you know, is not a superhero in the sense of having superhuman powers, but somebody who is capable and competent and can can do anything that he sets his mind to do. It sounds also kind of like he, maybe Kaler snuck a little American exceptionalism in there somewhere. Yes, I do. I agree that there is some of that, some of that exceptionalism. But it's also, I think, and more to what I think I was pointing to in the article, that these ideas about boyhood were really directed to specific segments of the population. So people who were affluent didn't need a model for how to rise. They already were affluent, secure, and boys who maybe were working hard. It's useful to remember that boys often started working when they were nine or 10 years old, especially boys that didn't have families. They were boot blacks or selling newspapers or many ways boys tried to earn a living. But they might need a model or some encouragement that they too could attain a stable, secure life uh, if they did some of the things that Jim does, like take advice when it's offered to you and do your job well and be honest and forthright. All things that I think the culture would have Uh, approved of. Those are very admirable qualities. Sounds sort of like the Protestant work ethic. It does, doesn't it? And then there's this, the knowing boy, the third type of boy he writes about, Kaler does, who can outsmart the dull-witted adults and uh, he seems to be one step ahead of them, even snidely mocking them and their restrictions and limitations they'd like to place on on people. In what setting is he placed in Kaler's novels? It's not his very last novel, but it's toward the end of his career. And it's definitely after the turn of the century. So there are a couple of things that might be operating here. Kaler's ideas might have changed. Ideas about the circus may have changed and the ways in which children and the circus and that relationship may have changed. But in this case, Joey is young, um, younger than Jim. He's probably six or seven or maybe eight. And he has stowed away on a circus wagon. So he has, again, kind of run away um, from his aunt, who is apparently a fine woman, but Um, He wants adventure and he wants the glamour of the circus. And so his experience is treated very differently because the way in which Toby Tyler actually comes to the circus is through a kind of seduction. In 1880s, when Kaler's writing about that, Toby is kind of seduced to the circus. But Joey, he like he jumps right in and the circus performers are like, all right, we'll take care of him until his parents realize he's gone and then we'll give him back. When he is wandering around the circus, as the performers are preparing, he is, he teases a lion and gets his, his clothing um, torn 
torn up, but he's not really injured. And so, but a rumor occurs or develops that he has been mauled by this lion. And he then he becomes a kind of marketing tool for the circus owner. Like you can see this child who has survived this horrible attack by a lion if you come to the circus. So his participation in the circus is accidental. He has some agency in that he is a person who um, chose to run away with the circus. He also works independently to make sure that he gets what he wants from the circus. When his Aunt Jane comes to get him, he resists her desire to go home. He negotiates with the circus owner to hide so she can't find him so that he can also drive the pony cart in the parade. He is very able to navigate all the different forces that are trying to push and pull him so that he gets what he wants rather than they get just what they want. Three rather different models of boyhood. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Ellen Donovan of the Department of English, talking about a peer-reviewed journal article she wrote about the novels of James Otis Kaler and the depictions of boyhood represented in his turn-of-the-century novels. There's a book called The Wreck of the Circus in which he tried to place the sentimental boy and a sort of kind of upwardly mobile boy in the same scenario. How did that work? So this is the book that really required me to think about what was happening in all of Kaler's circus books, because we usually think about people's ideas changing in a fairly simple trajectory. If he's Beginning in 1880, and his depiction of the circus is not all that positive, and we get a sentimental boy who needs to be in a family, and that's really the most healthy place for him. When we get to the wreck of the circus, which is about 12 or 15 years later, we see that same sentimental boy. I was like, why is he being made fun of in this book? So he's so sentimental that he is paralyzed by his sentiment. Phil is the sentimental boy, and Teddy is the somewhat upwardly mobile boy. And Phil and Teddy are planning to go to the circus together, but then Phil's parents say, no, 
you need to stay home and take care of your younger brother, Sam. We have to go out to the country. And so Phil disobeys his parents and he takes Sam with him to meet Teddy at the circus. And in the course of that experience, they become separated. And then something like a derecho um, occurs and the wind blows the circus tents down. And that was not an uncommon circus disaster. Phil can't find Sam and he believes Sam has been injured or has been killed in this um, weather event, but he can't be an active searcher. He just falls apart consistently. He's weeping constantly. He can't do anything. He can't search effectively. And so Teddy, the upwardly mobile boy, is the person who says, no, get a grip. Here's what we need to do. And so it's Teddy's effectiveness that eventually allows the boys to find Sam and bring him home. Phil's emotions are really prohibit him from doing anything productive in the novel. Does the novel work in your opinion? No, it does. <laughs> I find it a really interesting novel to try and work on because it's inconsistent in intellectually productive ways. But as a novel, I don't think it works very well. We really aren't sure how we should understand the relationship between Phil and Teddy. At the end of the book, Phil, as soon as his parents get home, he admits his wrongdoing. Teddy thinks he's crazy for doing that. Like everything is fine. Everything is, you don't need to tell your parents anything, but Phil does. He's a good, honest boy. He tells his parents and his parents feel that the trauma he has endured is sufficient punishment. And Teddy thinks, well, if you admitted that you have done this, your father should beat you. You should get some sort of corporal punishment. And so that's how the novel ends. So it's like, what are we supposed to think about this? Which character is the character whose, whose way of approaching the world is the one that the that Kaler is offering to us? So it's very um, yeah. unfinished or not well balanced. As I was reading your paper, there was a part of me that wanted to think all along that, that Kaler was following some changes in the American consciousness, like from the bucolic innocence to the boy who's interested in upward mobility to the sharp-witted, almost CEO mentality mm-hmm. of pragmatism and realizing that the, the world is full of uh, people who don't want you to succeed. But as you alluded to earlier, he or his publisher or both are playing to certain specific markets in writing the way that he writes. Was he 100% a, well, we might call him a sellout, as opposed to trying to write literature that would stand the test of time? Or was he no different than any other author of his day in his desire to appeal to specific financial markets? Writing for children was not necessarily a lucrative profession. You had to be constantly writing. And even at the end of his career, when Kaler was a superintendent of schools for a while in Maine, so it's not like he was making millions of dollars writing children's books. The fact that he wrote 180 over the course of, you know, approximately 30 years, that's a lot of writing. And so I think it's important to recognize that 
This was not necessarily a lucrative profession. And so he needed to be savvy in terms of markets. And number two, he didn't have inherited wealth to depend on. He didn't choose other professional outlets that would allow him to focus on fewer works that could maybe have a higher literary quality and maybe would have lasted as literature rather than just as childhood reading. That is an important thing to keep in mind when we talk about authors, particularly in the 19th century. The other thing that is important to think about is that, and this is actually why I love the end of the 19th century, it was crazy. I mean, there's technological transformation, there's cultural transformation. It's just very much a turbulent moment in American history. The fact that all of these publishers are kind of battling with each other for market share and trying to figure out how they can gain entree into a market, how they're going to do that. All of those things are operating. So I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that I do think that Taylor as a writer was just churning out books as fast as he could. And so he was being savvy in terms of understanding what a publisher wanted for the particular audience the publisher was interested in. So for example, Toby Tyler was serialized in a magazine appeared periodically over the course of a year that was kind of the top tier in children's publishing. And Harper's was also a top tier publisher. And that's his entree. He doesn't start at the bottom. He actually starts at the top. And he and his second book, Mr. Stubbs' Brother, is actually written a year after Toby Tyler. The onset of his career is very promising, but for whatever reasons, and we don't know those reasons, there's not been a lot of work done on him. So we don't really have a good sense of why he was making the decisions he was making, but he was clearly trying to make sure that he could get things published and that they would at least be sellable or or would make the publishers happy so that he could possibly contract with them again to produce other works. Is there any evidence that the way Kaler wrote had any lasting impact on any other authors of children's literature? I think it would be easier to see him as kind of absorbing all these various ideas about children and about children's culture that were very commonplace in the time period. So I don't see him as an influencer as much as an example of what was actually considered or thought about or written about at the time. The article is titled, Kaler's Boys, the Popular Print Market and Models of Boyhood, and it was published in uh, the spring 2021 issue of Children's Literature Association Quarterly. Our guest has been Dr. Ellen Donovan of the Department of English. Thank you, Ellen, for being our guest on MTSU on the Record. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Expanding New Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. 
For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Tennessee, and the mid-state in particular, have become a logistics hub, with 60% of the U.S. population within a day's drive. MTSU's Department of Management within the Jones College of Business is training the professionals to fulfill the workforce needs of an exploding industry through its new supply chain management major. Dr. Kimball Bullington, a supply chain management professor, explains the benefit of students entering this promising field. The variety of the experience is possible. I mean, you get into one supply chain job, but you can move around in the company. It's very upwardly mobile. Uh, Supply chain management is a common path to CEO because you have such broad experience. You may get into a job and you say, man, I don't know if I want to do this forever. Doesn't matter. So a lot of flexibility, good starting pay, and really no ceiling. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.